0: Welcome to the Venture Capital Podcast. This is the second episode we have ever done with guests. Um, As you know, Peter, the co-host, but we also have David Frazier, raise your hand. For those of you that are watching here on YouTube, and we have Kendall Frazier. And I think I've known them for 20 years now. Yeah. 20 years is a long time. So anyways, about once a week, Peter and I want to do every Friday, record an episode where we're bringing outsiders in to kind of come and share insights from either the founder's perspective or the the other side of the table, what it's like to be a venture capitalist. And so this episode is kind of like that the first episode. So if we make any mistakes, be patient with us. But first, David Kendall, do you want to talk about first without making any solicitations? What is the Fraser Group? How is it different? I don't know if you want to talk about your history at all, where you started in se- kind of like in secondaries, and now you've moved to primary investments. If I, hopefully I'm saying that right, David's giving me this this weird this weird look. David also has well, one of the best senses of, of humor that around.
1: I, I wish he hadn't said that. I was about to say we guarantee thirty percent year over year returns, <laughs> rock steady, rock stable. So that's important. Um, yeah, we uh, we've been a, a venture capitalist for twenty five years, uh, working with our dad, and now. Uh, we uh, raised four venture funds from LPS, and we put it into software.
0: What's the size of each fund?
1: Uh, 15, 20, 30, and then essentially ninety.
0: Okay, so the and so you're
1: going up a little bit each time. So. Okay, nice.
0: At what stage of in stage a uh, fund four are you in? Have you flo- Has it been fully deployed? Fifty percent deployed.
1: It's mostly deployed, so we're gonna go raise again. So.
0: Well, congrats. Thank you. Thank you. What kind of deals do you guys typically look at? This is probably the most common question when people are like, hey, who do I talk to? What is your like, ideal profile?
2: Oh, we love to get into companies at the seed or the pre-seed stage. We like software as a service. We like AI. We, uh, we love companies that are B2B. Mm-hmm. And that's what we look for. And but, then we, we also do a lot of follow-on as companies grow. So a lot of our capital will go into our existing portfolio as it matures.
0: And I feel like Kizix is also one of your your proud investments.
1: Yeah, we uh, we like to say software, software, software. And then when people say what kind of companies, we always just tell them about Kizix. <laughs> the software's boring. It's a software company. Boring. They make software and they move numbers and do stuff for businesses, but... Kizik makes cool shoes so you can step in. So
0: I think three of the four of us are wearing Kizik's today, right?
1: Yep. Yes, you are. Yep.
0: I think if you if you're connected to Utah VC at all, you have to be wearing a Kizik.
3: Right. Right. Got your Kodapaxy jacket in your Kizik. That's how you know you got VC. Right.
0: Well, let's kind of have this episode focused on AI and your perspective and the changing landscape. Um. And how do you think the startups or the companies in your portfolio should be u- utilizing AI?
2: Well, at a, I think at a base level, everyone should be using it to increase their own... I, I kind of think of it in two different ways. So in the one camp, I think everyone should be using it individually for their own productivity and their, uh, their teams and the people they work with should be using it. But you're not going to get like... Evaluation bump or credit for that because you're using AI in kind of a supporting way for your company, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So you absolutely need to be doing that.
1: I see. I, I, I don't think I don't think AI is a differentiator for most small companies. We saw the coolest company ever. They were doing AI-driven insights for sales. They'd look at all the data on Salesforce. And say, hey, you know. When this happens, that tends to happen. If you want better results, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it was really cool, really analytical, really powerful. And then we stopped and we thought to ourselves, this is exactly what Salesforce will want to do because that's Salesforce's whole job is to create data on your Salesforce motion and then like use it. And uh, what I think is going to happen to this company, no offense if you're that company, is Salesforce is going to show up and eat your lunch because it's their data. It's their platform. If they say, hey, everyone, we've got this great, we we just built this AI solution a year after this other small startup, but still we built it a year later. We've got an army of engineers and uh, we think everyone should use this. They're just going to eat the smaller company's lunch. So I I don't think you should lead in saying, hey, I'm going to build this tiny little niche uh ai application i don't i don't think that's going to build you a competitive moat it's the big ones that are going to swoop
0: in and and eat you up peter you're like nodding your head
3: oh yeah i just i mean i'm curious to hear what what the frasers think from uh like where the opportunities are in ai um but a lot of the things i've been thinking about lately is that I think there'll be big opportunities for AI infrastructure. And I think there'll be big opportunities for companies that have unique data sets. And I think all the companies that are essentially AI wrappers, there might be a couple winners in there, who knows? It'll be hard to like pick out. Some will get about, bought. Some will get bought. I think of them like Canva. Like Canva is like an interesting like product market led growth UX, but there's nothing really special about Canva, right, from a technology perspective. Um, so there could be some winners there, but I think they'll be really hard to pick. Um, and I think the big thing is that the incumbents who already have the customers, already have the data, they're just gonna be implementing LLMs from larger players and leveraging their own data set, their own customers. Um, and, and and frankly, like if you look at every single customer that's out there, or every single company, SaaS company that has access to these data sets, they all have an AI play, right, in process. They're all thinking about it because you have to. So, I don't know. So that's where, like, I'm thinking about where the opportunities are and where we're focusing is either unique data sets or infrastructure when it comes to, like, pure play AI.
1: Or or just have a really cool business and say, hey, AI, we were already planning to do this. It was already going to be so awesome. And now this AI is, is helping us make customers that much happier. Like sure. I like those kind of pitches, but if they come in saying, hey, we're different because we yep. use a large language model, to me, that, that kind of puts me off a little bit.
3: Yep. Yep.
0: In, in that sense, do you look at AI as it's something that everyone has to implement to be competitive? As you look at like the uh, economies of scale, everything is going to shift from an economic standpoint? And that if you don't do it, you just like, like, let's say you're, uh, you, you sell widgets, widgets are now 5% cheaper. If you can enable AI, you can stay competitive. If you don't, aren't able to enable AI into your business, your ERP, then you're going to be at a huge disadvantage.
1: I think in the long run, that's a hundred percent true that it's kind of table stakes. Like this isn't what you do as a business, but if you're just less efficient, then you just, you just won't make it. So. So I, I think you're 100% right there.
0: What kind of investments have you guys made in the AI space so far?
1: So
2: the investments we've made are not large language model related AI, but a couple of them come to mind. Uh, one of them we did, and we, you know, these were kind of done pre-AI hype, so we're kind of lucky on some of them. One of them uh, uses visual AI to help identify cancer. That one's doing well one of them Can you do you want to give a shout out yeah pathology watch Whoop, whoop. <laughs> so they're doing well and uh but again it's not really related now they they do incorporate some large language models just for helping write up notes and annotations when they identify cancer but that's not their bread and butter so i'm glad they're they're relying on that and they're integrating it in that's that's not what makes them interesting and then Um, the other would be Twin Thread, which is one of David's companies.
1: They are super cool. They do machine learning for industrial plants. So if you are, uh, Procter and Gamble and your plants, some days they're more energy efficient other days they're less energy efficient. They create a digital twin of the whole plant. They model every machine, every interaction, and then just machine learning. They just say, Hey, you've got Ten million data points to figure this out, and it turns out, you know, when things behave this way, they kind of affect those things that way, and and uh, builds a big, big, giant machine learning model. So they're really cool, and uh, we also have a, an investment in Filevine. They do case management software for law firms, and I think law firms are a great place for AI. A couple of things we've seen that are really cool. Uh, one, they can generate demand letters not just, hey, here's a generic, here's a a regular kind of demand letter, but it'll ingest all the documents and all the interactions with a a given party and say, hey, uh, David Frazier has this lawsuit going on with so-and-so, and and it pulls out of all the different documents. This happened, that happened, here's pain levels, here's medical records, everything. So pretty cool. Or another one we saw was uh, they would redlining for contracts when you see two contracts and they're a little different this one kind of like DocuSign says hey click here to find the next point where something's different from your contract where they changed it and then the AI can also say hey 80% of the time this change your boss finds that acceptable you said net 30 payment terms and they're saying net 45 and that's pretty cool that's fine and the AI can say, "Hey, but you know this other change they asked, we've never seen it before, and other companies never accept it, and it's pretty outrageous." So, pretty, this, pretty cool this, software.
0: Is this what Filevine's doing?
1: Yep, they're doing they're doing a lot with AI.
2: They're doing a ton. They kind of just started selling it in June, and it's already like a really sizable portion of the new revenue. Okay, and that's so fast. So. I mean, don't
1: don't quote me and don't listen Filevine, but literally I suspect probably half of their value uh, might be AI related. Like had, had AI not happened, they'd be worth half of what, what they'll be worth
0: eventually. Can you say what they're worth right now?
1: No, <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but they raised a couple years ago, they raised it 700 million. So they're, they're big and, uh, and you know, they're, they're good at what they do. So it's, it's not like a, a song and a prayer and a wish. It's like AI is,
3: is very big to them. And they kind of go back and reemphasize the point we made earlier, which is they have access to these unique data sets and they have the customers. And so if you were going to start like an AI legal tech company today, you don't have those two things. Those are the things that matter, not the ability to tap into an LLM.
1: Yep. a A, to your point, they don't have the data, so they can't train it to be quite as good at creating documents. And then B, they don't own the workflows of the customers. So if someone makes a different demand letter AI product, they have to say, hey, dear customer, I want you to export all the interactions you've ever had with a client to our system, move all the data out, which people don't love, and then we'll produce a demand letter and then all we give back is just the demand letter, whereas if it's done inside Filevine, where they already own the workflows and the data, they can reuse what they figured out from that demand letter five more times. They can say, "Oh, this is medical records. This is, you know, whatever." So, I, I think the advantage that the big companies have is pretty strong. Yeah.
0: Do you think that AI could be an innovator dilemma scenario to the and affect the very unit economics? of the SaaS industry. So for example, a lot of SaaS companies like Salesforce and HubSpot are built around the model of, we are going to sell seeds, but potentially AI could change it to, hey, we are now going to be charging for the output or the contribution, not just a generic seat. Do you see AI affecting like SaaS subscriptions in a major way?
1: I think in the long run, it's going to displace a lot of things and people will have to get really creative. Like. Like for me, not to go off topic, but related to this, I feel like SEO, if, if everyone in the world started using ChatGPT to search, like you don't search, you just ask ChatGPT and it gets way smarter and it's way better, then eventually the whole SEO market is disrupted because you don't have to go check people's websites. People don't have to make great content because the AI just kind of disrupted, circumvented the whole system. And I think they're all solvable, and they'll all get solved over time. Like Salesforce will find a way. If they're adding value, they'll find a way to extract it. And uh, you know, if SEO gets broken, then maybe the maybe the AI bot has to you know send money back to the successful websites, or, or you know, they're not sending traffic now; they're sending money. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But I, I think it'll all figure it out, though. But I think it's all gonna break. In the mean, it'll all break and they'll all get fixed.
0: When you're looking to make an investment into an AI company, what are the, are there things that you're looking for? I know like with running AI Utah, there's things that I look for to see if they're a rapper or if they're, they're really doing something foundational. For example, I look for statisticians. I look for uh, data engineers. I look for people with longevity in the space. There's a lot of startups that are starting right now that don't work. I feel like there's not anyone on the team who has any statistical analysis training. And I feel like that's a core part of any of these LLMs that are currently being rolled out. So even if you're going to modify it or provide a wrapper, I don't think, I I question how well the teams understand that. And I feel like that's the current push and startups tend, from my perspective, are missing that. Are you seeing that as well?
3: I mean, I think. What's that smile for? I think that, that stuff is interesting and important, but I mean, if you're if you're going out to build a true LLM, I mean, you need to raise a ton of money. To find a ton. I mean I mean, look at like OpenAI, look at Anthropic, look at Cohere, look at, you know, some of the big LLM businesses. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars, in some cases billions of dollars, on the processing to build these these large language models. So I don't know, I get really skeptical that, you know, a random startup is gonna have the technical talent and much less so the capital available to build those types of complex models. Um, So I don't know. But, but what you were saying earlier, they could
1: corner some data that that would be valuable or they could corner some customers. Well, and in a lot of
3: of cases though, they're going to use the LLMs that have been built and trained, uh, you know, by others. They'll ingest their own data into those and and be able to come up with unique insights
1: i want to hear what you guys think about whether the large language models are even going to be differentiated or special like at at some point are they are they all just going to kind of seem kind of similar and one day anthropic is the best and then four months later chat gpt5 comes out and then you know it are they going to be very special? Or are they going to be a bunch of, uh, you know, American Airlines versus Delta Airlines versus Southwest? So,
3: I mean, I think, I don't know, my viewpoint on it, having looked at several of the large LLM businesses, is that to a certain extent they will converge. So They'll have, like, their unique differences. Um, but honestly, I think over time, compute costs will come down, uh, the LLMs will be more or less commoditized. What I think is more interesting is, will those companies be able to build the infrastructure? So will those companies be able to build the infrastructure that makes it easy for other companies to build on top of them? Much like there's nothing special about having a server farm, right? That's not what makes AWS special what makes AWS special is all of the software that's layered on top of the servers. And so I think that is where, like, the bigger opportunity comes from. And so if you're looking at, like, an open AI, I think open AI is, like, an interesting company, largely because, like, everybody uses ChatGPT, you know? And because everybody uses it and everybody, you know, they're able to to engage with, and integrate with so many different companies that they're building out this incredible tech stack that will, I think, allow them to have long-term longevity in the space. Um, but, you know, I don't know, like five years from now, if you're gonna start like a brand new LLM business, I, I think it'll be more or less commoditized on that side. I don't know, that's my viewpoint. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. I like that answer.
2: I like that answer too. Actually, uh, I was pitched by someone who wants to build a, an LLM to compete with OpenAI and uh, Anthropic, and uh, uh-huh. trying to think what the differentiator was going to be. I think it was going to be he claimed that it would it wouldn't have all the the safety controls, <laughs> 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 and, and, and he was going to raise it from Saudi Arabia, right? Yep, he was gonna raise it from Saudi Arabia and it wasn't gonna have all the guardrails. I'm like, well
3: <laughs> But I mean that's gonna happen, right? But um but I don't know if that's the one that you wanna invest in from <laughs> like a business perspective. Cause like
2: And how often do those guardrails really like hamper your business's ability to utilize the model anyway? Yeah, like is yeah. that hurting FileVine because like, oh dang that you know, the LLM we're using isn't letting us redline the documents the way we want. So yeah.
3: Well, and frankly, guardrails are good, right? I mean, you yeah. think about like Twitter slash X. Yeah. Got rid of a bunch of guardrails and got rid of a bunch of customers as part of it. Right. So
0: fascinating stuff. So um, what about the sh- back to this like company that pitched you? Um, if you look at like what's happening in crypto. Um, there, there's a competitor, and maybe Sam can maybe find it for us. He's our, he's our helper, um, producer. Should we call you the producer, Sam?
1: Are things happening in crypto?
0: Well, oh. so I, <laughs> I was listening to it was with the All in podcast, and they were talking about how um, a lot of the markets, like the, F, the like the next FTX, they think is going to come out of the UAB, and because of the regulations, and they're making it easier, more predictable for people to work with. And do you see the center of AI if the U.S. is so focused, like if companies like Google are so focused on uh, being politically correct, uh, having all these guardrails out of the gate, a company could go to the UAB, have an infinite amount of cash that could come from there. And do you think that makes it tough for your portfolio companies, your investments to be competitive?
2: I don't think so. Only because of... How much brain power, capital, and like GPU time you need to like make these huge AI models? I've read that like China is just struggling now. They're not allowed to have the best, but I think it just has to be centered in the United States and probably even San Francisco for the next like year or two because that's where all the smartest engineers live. It's where the capital is. You can get GPUs here. I think if you had a model that was trained without any of the guardrails that like the U.S. might just restrict it and say, sorry, we're not going to let you, you know, and maybe the people who provide it like NVIDIA and the, the data centers here would just cut them off. And I think even just the risk of that would be too great for them to attempt it. And then I'm not sure, like I said before, that like taking the guardrails off just unlocks all this power that is like good in a business case. I'm not sure that, that it like makes a lot of sense to take the guardrails away. Does that make you more profitable? I'm not sure it even does.
3: I mean, An- Anthropic makes the argument that they have more guardrails. And by having more guardrails, it makes it more compelling for businesses. To yeah,
2: then they can actually use it and they're not bringing their hands and they're not open to lawsuits. Yeah, right.
1: I, I personally right. don't want guardrails on mine, but <laughs> but <laughs> enterprises are terrified by the idea of Everything that could go wrong, and they right. have to control it very carefully. And to the yep. extent that there's, you know, some protection in there that makes sense for enterprises, and they're the ones that have all the money and spend all the money. And I don't, I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't bet on a
3: Saudi Arabian yep. AI horse. Self. The other thing too that kind of surprised me is that um, even though a lot of people talk about. At GPT from a, like a consumer perspective, the number of like actual consumers that are using it is relatively small compared to the number of businesses that are using it. I mean and actually paying for it. So a lot of people use it, right, but they use the free version, but they there's not a lot of like individual consumers that are paying out of pocket uh, for it on a regular basis compared to the like business thing.
1: seems like coders get a lot of value from it. Yeah, But a lot of other people just use it as a modestly better search engine and businesses are going to use it everywhere all the time yep. in yep. a really cool way. So I'm 100% on the hype train for like, yeah. is it going to completely change everything in business? Yes. <laughs> is it going to change everything in, in the near term in everything your personal else? Yeah. life?
3: Not really. Although, you know, to counter that, I, I have this friend and he was like, I don't know what, you know, it's our big anniversary coming up and I got to like do something nice. And he ended up like going to chat GPT and being like, here's like, here's my situation. Here's my wife. Like, give me something like good. And it like gave him this big, long love letter that he then like tweaked it just a little <laughs> bit, gave it to his wife. <laughs> His wife was like, this is the nicest, like most romantic thing you have ever done for me in my life <laughs> oh, <laughs> Her marriage, <no>. right? she's, <laughs> gonna, she's gonna put that into like a, someday there'll be something that checks if it oh, was Oh, there produced. are checkers, there are checkers. She's gonna there put are. it
1: in a checker one day and that marriage is done. No, no I
2: don't think so. No, he can then claim that it was trained on his letter. Yeah, yeah, be yeah like, that's true. He'll be like, it was trained on mine. It was the pinnacle of,
3: yep. I mean, as long as he didn't lie. Right? as long as he <laughs> believed everything that was in the letter, then it's fine, right? but But, I guess my point is is like he's getting this additional value, right, as a consumer and something that's you know maybe less little less obvious. The other thing though, I saw this chart recently uh, that was really interesting, and they did this study, and they 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 had like two groups. They had one group that had access to like a chat GPT and one group that didn't. And they looked at like productivity over time. And they were able to demonstrate, like, the quality of output of the work was, like, like one to two standard deviations better on, on average uh, if they were using, you know, one of these, these uh, AI models like ChatGPT to assist them in their work than those that didn't. So it was, it was interesting because, like, intuitively, we think, like, yeah, that makes sense. But to actually see it, like, in the data was I I really like using
1: it to get me started something. Yeah. Yeah. I use it to get started and then I try to go back to what I like to to like my own tone. Yep. Like I I don't like the output but I like having something handed to me that's half done.
3: Yeah. It's like a nice framework to get you started. Although, you know, it's like we did a podcast the other day and John threw in a like, hey, how do venture funds get evaluated into ChatGPT? And it gave out this outline. And I don't think maybe we, maybe we included like one out of seven sections. I
0: think the stats in, <laughs> in, in that
3: episode, there were a lot of internal like stats you were using
0: outside of the MOIC and the IRR that weren't included in the
3: outline. Yeah. I guess my point is it's not always 100%. It'll get better over time
1: investing choosing a venture capitalist is an art and I'm i'm offended by suggesting that <laughs> that we be defined by our moic or
3: our, our tvpi yeah tvpi that's, was not included that's hurtful in the,
0: in, in well the, in the output
3: but my yeah so we covered those kinds of things because they are the things that like vcs get evaluated on, right so and it, it was just an intro course or intro, I, I, i'm just intro kidding episode.
1: actually i I feel like the hard returns are the only thing that matters so
2: <laughs> I was tell, I was telling David so we're LPs in quite a few funds and a, a surprising number of them when you go to like their investment meetings don't even talk about like the IRR or the net IRR it's for the pitch. fund yeah when when shocked. they're
3: pitching a f- when they're pitching their fund
2: uh no these are like the annual updates so it's uh, kind the, of the, it's the not like a meetings, hard yeah. pitch but yeah when they're like saying here's the performance a lot of them just ignore it Ooh. i don't know if it's just us that that raises like a big red flag for or if yeah. all lps feel that way i have no idea
3: well i i don't know i've been to a bunch of lpa meetings or lp meetings and uh my feel is that the funds that are doing well have no problem yeah then they, they share <laughs> it sharing yeah, exactly. their net irrs <laughs> and the ones that are like uh, things are going so great, you know, try to, try to hide it one yep. way or another. Yeah.
0: You know, one of the things I've noticed as I've hung out with other VCs is how many VCs are investors in other funds. Why is that? Is that because it's the easiest way to get competitive intelligence? Are you just trying to build the network?
1: Well, we're, we're part of that for sure. I mean, we've invested, I think we counted 13 venture funds that, that these were also a family office, as you might tell from Scott Frazier and Kendall Frazier and David Frazier. So. We've done our share of investing in VC funds, and some of them are really great. Um, I think it, it was just we didn't have the deal flow at the time, so we had to park our money in venture where we liked. But I think once you have enough deal flow, um, I, don't, I don't view co-investing as like the pinnacle of your best deals the selection bias is really strong. And actually, I take an exception to that because Peter, you've shared two of our best deals, Parallel and Project Solar. so thank you. But generally speaking, the deals that are really hot, super competitive, really compelling, a venture fund will do, put all the money in themselves. They'll say, this is the best thing we've ever seen. I love it more than anything. There's no room to share. And then there's a tier down where they're like, hey, you know, we don't really want that much. No other venture funds really want it, and therefore we will
3: syndicate, um, or they'll do stuff that's outside their stage. Right? They're like, ah, like we we're a Series A shop, and you know they're raising a Series D, and uh, you can invest in that. But at that point, you know valuations are high, and you know they'll run SPVs and other things to, to make those happen. So, but I, not I, particularly helpful if you're a seed fund. <laughs>
1: I don't view investing in other venture funds for their co-investment. I don't view that as like the end perfect situation because the co-investing is, is good, but not arguably not as good as just sourcing your own deals. I
3: think like, well, so I'm an LP in a handful of funds. And for me, it's partly because it's, they're my, they're my friends, you know, and, I like them and I like their performance and you know I want to be supportive and and uh, I have friends that are LPs in my fund that are at other venture funds and <laughs> so there is I wouldn't say it's like a quid pro quo per se but like there is a little bit of like yeah like I'm an investor in your fund you're an investor in my fund like we're friends let's go like make fun stuff happen together it's I think there's also a little bit of like hey this is an opportunity for me to to diversify a little bit uh because like for example, I'm in I'm an LP in a super, super, super early, like pre pre seed fund. And that's not what we do as a fund. But I think it's an interesting place to be. So I'm, you know, small LP in their fund because, you know, I, I like the diversification and I like looking at the stuff that they're looking at, you know, and and so I think there's a little bit of that. Um, I know there are a lot of funds, like Sequoia does this a bunch, I know, where they'll make investments in like early pre-seed funds and they're just hunting for deal flow from that perspective or they're like, we want to re- re- do the series A and so we want like insight into as many companies as possible. So they'll, they'll be an LP in a bunch of these pre-seed funds and then those funds go out and write, you know, a hundred checks. And so with, you know, 10 LP commits, they can have access to like a thousand companies and uh, their metrics and, and track them and so forth. So I think there's like value there. Uh, depending on what your strategy is um but yeah i mean that's that's my perspective on kind of why i've written lp checks
0: how has ai changed your your thesis as an investor and then how would that and would that uh correlate or change your uh, your thesis as a founder if you're a founder
2: oh i would say it hasn't but uh david could say better than i have i think What the Frasers really look for is something that can have a long-term competitive advantage, and sometimes, like a company like Kizik Shoes or Project Solar, will come to us, and our first inclination is like, "No, never in a million years would we invest in something like that." It's not software, but we dig deeper and we see like, "Okay, we really like the moats that they can build and the competitive advantages and different aspects of it, and we'll do them anyway." And so, I think for AI it's the same where we just hold it to that same standard and that's why we would invest if it can own the data or the users and if it can't like we just wouldn't give it credit for ai so we maybe would still invest just because they're using ai and maybe they're over claim they're overselling the ai part isn't like we're not going to not fund it but they don't get the ai credit because that part is going to be commoditized so Uh, I would argue that it hasn't changed our fundamentally, but.
1: I I think that um, having AI, just the existence and the efficiencies of AI is a good thing for investors because there's always kind of this pull, push and pull between, hey, here are these legacy solutions that already work, that have already figured something out and meeting a need. And then here's these younger companies that are trying to disrupt and they're trying to change the way things are done. There's always this push and pull, and I feel like AI is causing the gap between the two to be wider than ever. like you look at some dinosaur, some yardie or real page if you're in real estate, or you know or just,
2: anything that's on-prem
1: software <laughs> <in the> On-prem <laughs> software it, right now, there are companies that are like, "Hey, they work," and they're you know they. They check every feature set box that we have. And so they stick with them, even though you're like, why aren't you doing this new cool company? They do really cool things. But anyway, now the gap between the two is wider than ever. And so it's making, I think, all disruptive companies and young companies are going to be able to eat the dinosaur's lunch a little bit better. It's going to make them a little bit more stinky.
3: Yeah, I mean basically, right? Like if you're on prem, you're going to have a real hard time implementing true AI tech into your tech stack and providing those that value whereas a new up and comer that's more cloud based right out of the gate can theoretically offer all of those same features plus a whole bunch more that's even, you know, it's even more difficult from those for those incumbents to be able to catch up with. So, yeah, I think I think that's a great point. For me, like it really hasn't changed our strategy a whole lot other than what I talked about is like when we're looking at opportunities in AI, it's the infrastructure stuff, it's the unique data set stuff. And so if you're starting a new company and you want to be in the AI space, I would be thinking about like, well, where can I play in those two? Because if you're going to be just an AI wrapper, you're effectively building on someone else's platform, which you don't control. And that's just always a super tenuous place to be. And then I also think you're lacking the things that are like truly competitive um, and, and create, you know, real barriers, which is customers and, and to a certain extent data as well, right, uh, that your incumbents have. And if your incumbents have like a reasonable tech stack, they're going to be able to implement AI very effectively. So,
0: What areas of infrastructure are you looking at?
3: so these could be anything from like we've you know we've looked at like some of the large llms we've looked at companies that are more on the um the the actual like gpu cloud processing space we've looked at companies uh that are providing like security um uh and that tech stack um different like optimization tools like picks and shovels really um so that, those are yeah a few different types of examples of stuff that we are looking at or have looked at we saw one
1: that i thought was really cool that was making machine learning more accessible although maybe they're not that that long-term perfect protected but they were basically saying hey to get to a good machine learning model your data has to be in this kind of a state you have to spend this much time to get there and uh we've got these kind of pre-baked not quite as efficient models ways to structure your unstructured data to at least let you ask build kind of some shaky machine learning models and you know they're not perfect and if you spend a long time refining your data you'd get a better answer but it's kind of like a hey get a quick and dirty answer and then spend the time to build something really robust i thought that was pretty cool but but uh, as I think about it, I wonder if, you know, eventually that's not open AI's first mission is to make, you know, models more accessible or to value more accessible. So
0: if each of you were to start an infrastructure business, what would it be?
1: Banana stands, There's always money <laughs> in the banana stand.
3: <laughs> I mean, honestly, I probably wouldn't because that's not where my expertise lies.
0: But if you had to, like of trends you're (laughs) seeing, like let's get the secrets from the VCs without Uh, violating NDAs.
3: I mean, I'd probably take a look at like all of the different softwares that sit on and around like AWS and other cloud providers and think, all right, what are the things that are going to be needed that are similar to this for AI companies, right? whether it's all the way down from like, hey, what's the next like digital ocean of AI to what are like the different cybersecurity tools that need to exist to what are the analytics packages, right? And I mean, there's gonna be a point where like, like you have companies like Cloudability that help companies that are on AWS better manage their spend and understand that there's gonna be companies like that that are gonna be needed on the AI side as well. So, I I don't know. I'd be looking at some stuff in and around that. I was with okay. an
0: AWS rep this morning who was talking about that idea. They'll just have these mysterious $50,000, $100,000 bills now that all these CEOs are like, do AI, and they're not going to know what the actual impact yep. is yep. from that, AI, that investment in AI infrastructure from like AWS.
1: Yep. I think my advice regarding infrastructure would be to select a niche that's small enough to win that you can dominate. Hmm. So I, I, if you just said, hey, make another, you know, add on to AWS or something, I worry about that. We invested in a company called Opinion that was doing something not very special, uh, reputation, like give, give five star reviews and uh, leave reviews and surveys, but they did it in the multifamily real estate space where they came. They said, hey, you know, if you want really great reputation, you could just go to Podium and that'd be fine. But we at Opinion are going to make it exactly for what a property manager needs, and it's going to do exactly what a property manager wants when they want it. So you get a, you get a maintenance fix, then you get a, a, a review request, or you're going to leave in three months, then you get a, a survey saying, are you going to stay? You're going to leave? So they were doing something that wasn't going to win in the broader ocean, but they picked a small enough niche where they said, hey, we're just going to make exactly what people want here. And I felt like they won because of that. They're they're doing great. So I I would just try and narrow down small enough where someone hasn't quite cared about it quite yet.
0: Okay. What about the data side? So the infrastructure side, we've talked about. What about the data side? What part of that are spaces where AI makes it a compelling, like, company to run or an investment to?
3: Well, I mean, I think, like, I mean, this is not entirely fair, but I think, like, FileVine's a good example of a company that has unique data, right, that they can leverage. So, you know, I I don't know necessarily where all the unique data sets might reside or, or where the potential there is, but entrepreneurs that... Have insight into like, hey, here's an area where I can tap into a very valuable data set based on the experience that I've, you know, collected over my career, like, and I'm going to leverage that now with AI to come up with really interesting insights. Like that's, I think, an interesting opportunity. And frankly, there's so many of those potential data sets that are out there. For people to either create or to leverage to do interesting things with.
2: Maybe target on prem, some industry yeah. that's dominated by on prem software, uh, Filevine, because they're kind of up market for law firms. He told me that 80% of the companies of larger law firms still use on prem case management software. So maybe look for an industry with like tired, sleepy, like there can be big competitors. They just need to be like the tired, sleepy, on-prem ones rather than like hot, well-funded San Francisco startup giants. Uh I also, Ben Peterson with uh Bamboo. Bamboo HR told me that uh when he was thinking about starting Bamboo HR, he looked at the industry and he's like, you know, there are a lot of HRISs and there's some really big sophisticated scary ones but he's like but they're just like such bad companies they're boring dinosaurs and so they were able to come in as like a lean startup and displace them And it was still a lot of work but that's who they were competing with when we evaluate companies we draw this big difference like what's the competitive landscape like and if it's some big boring company then yeah that's okay that those that they are competing with them but if it's like a uh, well-funded San Francisco startup, and it's really slick and good. Then it's like, oh, maybe I don't want to compete with them. They have a huge start.
1: And my advice, if you're saying, hey, where should I go for to like build a data advantage in my next business? I think you should just pick whatever's adjacent to what you've, where you've already been working and where your experience is. You've been yeah. at Divi and you like factoring and credit cards. Then do something related to that. Or if you were at Qualtrics, then do a Qualtrics related. Qualtrics just wouldn't solve this problem, and and I will. So I, I, in my mind, even more important than saying like this is a better place would be just hey, what are you good at, and what do you kind of know really well? Yep, yeah, hundred percent agree.
0: Where does AI go beyond LLMs?
2: Yes, I think it goes more broad. I think the LLMs are already really good at what they do. And the core is basically there. I don't think a year from now, you're going to see chat GPT for the core LLM be like an order of magnitude better, but I think it's going to go wide. So, and you know, that's, it's already going multimodal. So you're getting images and audio files that it can process. And that's good. And I think people are hard at work giving it power to actually do stuff for you. And it's gonna go just really broad and wide. So I think people are still scrambling to take advantage of the core that's already there. And I think we're gonna see that. And I wonder if we're gonna see more like stuff that's like LLMs, but not for words. Maybe you'll see it related to images or other types of machine learning, I don't know. I
1: I was talking with the founder of uh, Twin Thread, who does the machine learning, and maybe it's just because he's kind of old, but he was telling me, he was kind of a hater, he was like, you know, a lot of these models that LLMs are built on, they're algorithms that are created in the 80s or earlier, in the 60s, and that it's just the fact that there's enough processing power now that people are, th- th- these models are finding success and they're being more successful than anyone expected. So I, I guess in my mind, uh, I don't think anyone has a, you know, here's large language models and now here is the next evolutionary step. I don't think it exists yet, even in its infancy. I don't think anyone,
0: but to Kendall's point,
1: LLMs are going to be so successful, and they're going to be everywhere, and they're going to be a thousand times more usable and ubiquitous. So I I love that, and I don't want to understate that. But I don't think I don't think there is a a next step, or or when there is, it'll be something surprising that
0: no one knows. Now, Twin Threads out of Virginia, right?
1: Uh, they're in Bozeman actually. Bozeman. But, oh, but uh, all their uh, machine learning people are professors at I think University of Virginia or something.
0: Okay. How did you come across this deal? Next Frontier Capital.
1: So shout out to them. They operate in, uh, they're in Montana and they invest in like Colorado, Montana, Idaho, Utah. They're just really great, really smart. Um, so they shared it with us. They've been in very early. They knew uh, uh, the founder of Twin Thread for a lot of years. So.
3: great people fun stuff hey what do you guys think do you think um ai is going to replace jobs i think
1: if you're saying they're more if they're adding efficiency into a business at the moment you say that you're also saying you don't need as many people doing the exact same jobs so i think that's that seems that seems like just like a tautology to me. Like you say this, you're saying that as well. Mm-hmm. But I think the other half of the question is are there so many jobs out there? Are there things that people can still do? Like, is there, is there going to be a net fewer jobs in the world? I don't really think so. Like, if people could say that about cars and horses and anything that's gone out of fashion and there have been new jobs. So.
0: Entertainment, lots of entertainment jobs now that weren't there before.
1: I, yeah, so I, th- I think there will be huge disruption. There will be jobs that one person does that five people did before. There, there's definitely that. But in terms of can new people, will new
3: jobs exist? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's kind of interesting is that um, the jobs that are least likely get to get displaced are the more manual labor jobs that historically have been under threat from technology and machinery and robots and so forth. And the jobs that are probably the most threatened are a lot of white collar type jobs. You know, I was talking to- Serves them right too. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking to somebody earlier today and he was like, oh yeah, I was gonna, you know, I went and worked at a big four accounting firm and even the big four, you know, accounting firm was like, hey, with all this AI technology coming down the pipeline, it's gonna totally like change what accounting is. And he was like, crap if you guys are saying that i'm not going to have a job i need to transfer industries uh-huh. like asap right um so you know i think i think you'll see more of that where like we just don't need as many accountants or lawyers or you know a, a bunch of these jobs um which i actually view as a great thing because uh i joke at university growth fund that i try to convince a lot of accountants and lawyers not to do accounting or or lawyering things and um because it's just kind of a waste of their life and potential I feel like in, in a lot of cases that they could take that same intellect and use it to create more, create, you know, to do things that are more creative. And I think that's where like, there can be some really interesting new job opportunities, new careers, new businesses that exist because we were able to kind of unlock some of that human potential that currently gets locked up in, law firms and accounting firms and uh, and other places like that.
2: I think that's right. And I think you're particularly at risk if you're like entry-level white-collar worker. Like paralegals are probably at more risk than a full-fledged lawyer. And I think the lower-level accountants are probably at more risk because I think the AI is going to say, we just need fewer paralegals because they right AI is doing that and i don't know in 10 years where it'll be but i think in the short term it's kind of those entry level white collar workers who are really at
3: risk or anybody that doesn't have any sort of like real true differentiated expertise yeah right Uh,
1: john can i hold your phone so it seems like i'm reading from this
3: okay john what do you think about
1: uh universal basic income or (laughs) ai or ai tax like do we need to write my mind Oh, is that on there
0: that's not on there but it was going, were.
1: <laughs> well tell tell us your thoughts on uh righting the wrongs of uh of ai disruption
0: um when i look at the the economy right now i see a massive amount of of investment of our time and whatnot being spent on entertainment and i look at that in relation to universal basic income in two aspects one have we just ran out of opportunities to do productive things, and so will AI just push us that much more where we can entertain ourselves, you know, can we eight hours a day and do two hours of work, nice. or is it the flip side of a of this entertainment is just a drug, and it's keeping us from going to like the next stage of like civilization, it's like a Dyson sphere joke on the joke about the Dyson sphere, but
1: but does that mean like spending more time outside and feeling the grass, or what? What's that? If if entertainment is the drug, what is the,
0: uh, I don't know if it's the drug or it's the symptom, the symptom that we are becoming so advanced. We don't have to work 12 hours a day like we used to, or it's, you know, a combination, but I should flip this back on you but, now. But
1: what should people be doing with their time? If they, they just like, Hey, you get one hour of TV. What is, what is the thing they do?
0: I think people should be focusing a lot more on education. I think education is more important than ever before, and it's going to take more and more discipline to do that when there's more and more distractions around, and when you you see all these.
1: And when AI lets you skip getting educated,
0: I don't think it works. Like it answers the
1: question. It answers the questions for you. You don't have to learn the math. Like, what's the
2: point? that AI can do. If I will need to know a history, I'll just ask at that moment, just-in-time history retrieval, I'll get it from the AI.
0: I look at AI right now from a coding perspective as it's really good at guessing like what's the next one, two, or three logical steps. But I feel like it has a much harder, you know, it's a much harder process to say, hey, what's, what's a degree or two order of magnitude better? And that's where I feel like there's going to be this huge breakaway. So you're going to look at like I think a lot of junior white collar jobs we won't perhaps need as many, and maybe we'll end up spending more time in school getting educated. But I think becoming a critical thinker is more important than ever before. One of the, my favorite stickers I have on my computer at home was when it's talking about the last two years of the of the market. It was it says this is like the the year of technical debt, and the idea was that when the interest rate for money was you know close to zero, people spent a lot of money just Building code fast, building crappy code, and not really thinking things through because it was free. But I also I, I see that same sticker being applicable even more so today, where people they don't have to th- really think things through or really analyze it. And like I look at ChatGPT and these other tools as doing really good jobs, but it will miss very important things. And there's been times where I've where I've made decisions. And I've like sent messages to other people based on analysis. And then I went back and I'm like, it made a completely wrong analysis. And so I th- I think, you know, we, we shift, we can accomplish more, but critical thinking is more important. Being self-disciplined is more important. Um, learning structure and rules is more important today than it was yesterday.
2: Oh, I know, I just thought of something I want AI to disrupt. The four year like college education. If you have AI, I don't know. It's like, are people going to want to sit in school and spend four years of their lives learning like rote facts and learning like skills that are like almost outdated by the time they get out of school? And like, is it be, or would it be better for society if people just skip it, get into their educate, you know, start working on something that's valuable and then kind of. Great, well, or or you could go Iterative to the four-year
1: school, but your four years are like, hey, you spent a year this time, and then you got a a real job, and you did this real thing, and then you furthered your education again. So does, I I agree. I don't think it has to be a big lump. Yeah, like a big upfront, boom. Here's just these years that you're
3: educated, and then you're uneducated ever again. Yeah. I will say though that one of the things I worry about with uh, AI from an education perspective is. Like, if you think about true innovation, usually people talk about it as the intersection of two separate disciplines. And um, and the problem with, you know, AI is that if you never learn, if you never become like an expert in a given space, because you're always just going to, you have this crotch called AI that just serves up stuff, you never actually end up becoming an expert enough in you know, enough disciplines to be able to identify new, innovative, creative solutions to problems. Um, So that, I mean, I think, you know, the flip side of saying, hey, AI is going to solve a lot of this tedious work that we do is going to open up opportunities for us to do more higher level thinking could also backfire in that regard too. And that like, if it becomes too much of a crutch that we don't, we don't learn, we don't gain experiences and so forth, like that could be a problem flip side is i'm not a huge fan of four-year education i think i think for the most part you don't use 90 percent of what you learn in school um and it's a it's a tremendous burden financially for a lot of people um and i think there are much more effective ways to achieve same or similar or superior uh results um such as programs like university growth fund frankly right where it's like come join our fund and let's look at some deals together. And we're going to teach you how finance and we're going to teach you analyzing markets and we're going to teach you analyzing competitors and assessing management teams in real time, looking at real deals versus like reading through a case study where you don't have enough context or depth to really get like well, meaningful Well, that sounds awesome. There.
2: Where was that 20 years ago when John <laughs> and I were in school?
1: <laughs> well, Well, the cool thing about a program like University Growth Fund is the answers aren't always like, pure black and white either. Right. Like a a textbook kind of says, oh, this is a better example because it's so obviously this way or that way. Yep. And uh, so that's a a cool program.
3: But the real world's not like that, right? You know, they're varying shades of gray and sometimes it's hard to tell which shade is brighter, (laughs) darker from the other. And sometimes there's a lot of just like variability in life. And investments and all kinds of stuff where you're like, I never thought that company would succeed. And that ends up being wildly successful. And the company you thought like checked every single box ends up failing uh, for you know, some reason you didn't anticipate. So I do wonder, so back to your basic universal income question, if we didn't actually just go through an experiment of that over the last couple of years, co big so, money? Yeah, so you think about like all the money that was spent on COVID, right? Uh, that went out to people to basically help them meet their needs over a certain time period, right? And uh, one of the big results of that was inflation, obviously, but the <laughs> the other was this huge employment gap, and how hard it is for so many companies, particularly like restaurants, you know, manual labor type jobs, to find people to work there, and like how frustrating i don't know if you guys have felt this but like you go to a restaurant and it's like there's nobody there to like serve you right and it kind of makes sense because it's like why why would i do that when you know they're not paying me enough right and so um my business partner was just telling me the other day that you can go and you can work at Panda Express and make like 22 an hour right i mean if you're working 40 hours a week that translates Into like what $44,000 annually for serving up some wontons. I mean, you know, it's but it is hard work.
1: I, I, I admire people who work hard, hard 40 hour work week. So, sure. So,
2: David and I have a friend whose 16 year old daughter was basically running the whole front end of this sushi restaurant, and he found out. She was like serving alcohol and managing the whole thing and he came in and he's like, "Nope. She's 16." He's like, "Put the kibosh on that." But it was just funny. He's like, yeah. "They're in such high demand that my 16-year-old daughter was just running the front end of the yeah. restaurant completely like, "Well, she's a smart girl. That's really impressive." But yeah. also he's like, "But it went too far." Yeah. Killed it. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, no, I agree. I I think I think they it is a hard job and it you know requires A lot of time and effort, but that wasn't a problem that existed before all of this.
2: I also kind of wonder didn't a lot of that like stimmy money find its way to like just like some of the biggest tech companies like Apple and Amazon? And was that the wrong perception? Like, because people just the money flowed like they spent it, but it all just flowed into some of the very tech somewhere, right? Yeah, they spent it, they all spent it at the same place. I don't know. So it all kind of just flowed to these mega tech companies and I don't know. I don't know how you address that or maybe you don't with the universal basic.
3: Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's an interesting thing to think about.
1: Universal basic income for me but not
3: for thee. That's my philosophy. <laughs> That's what I want. That I want.
0: What are some of your your biggest misses as investors?
3: So like investments we made that failed or weren't in investments in that we should have made I mean, mean like the whole, out on the
0: whole reason i got into the venture space initially was is i was a student at brigham university um i recognized or perceived there was value of being if you could find the next like google early on I, I omniture was the example i gave but no one knows what omniture is anymore um unless you're like part of the old school but it's like how do i find those opportunities and i think of the opportunities I missed like I saw Lucid chart when it was just Ben Diltz um and I introduced him to his first business co-founder instead of like you know taking that op- opportunity for myself um I was with the Utah Angels with Ben Peterson and I saw him start Bamboo HR and I'm like this is this is crazy and there's been like a handful of others that I've seen or have been connected to
1: I I actually feel like you you shouldn't live your life looking at what could have been and you just say, "Look, you know, I'm going to try and make money the best way I can. And if this company makes sense to me, then invest in it." But I I worry that if you if you look at it from the perspective of, "Boy, if I missed this one and it it could have become a billion dollars, that you're going to get stuck into the the FOMO route and then you're then you're going to do even worse." So even, even though we've missed some big ones, we missed.
2: Well, we missed Bamboo, but we were a little light on cash. Ben Peterson pitched before David and I were here, pitched our dad for money right at the very start. Mm-hmm. He's like, I was light on cash. I didn't do it, but he's like, but I should have made room to do it. Mm-hmm. But So we, we do have a fair share of misses, but uh, yeah, David lectures us all the time at the Frazier Group mm-hmm. about like not over-learning from specific examples, because it can become like a logical fallacy almost to just overtrain yourself based on like, well, this was a huge hit and we missed it. And I invested in this and something unexpected happened and it did worse than it should have. Like you need to to learn from those, but most, a lot of investors over-learn from just a couple of those data points. And you have to have the conviction to say no. I'm, we, we invest in things that are like defensible and have a moat and long-term competitive advantages. We're not going to fall into the FOMO trap because if it violates our core convictions, then we just have to say no and have confidence that. Anyway, is, is there, there's a,
1: there's a company in Utah that grew up to a billion dollar valuation. They're now lower than that, although not officially. And I was convinced that the founder was a scammer, a literal, actual fraudster. And I told as much to uh, a VC. They're like, would you introduce me to the founder? And I said, I will, but also I want to tell you that I'm convinced they are like legitimately, actually real life fraudulent. And uh, I connected them anyway, and then they invested, and then they made a ton of money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of hoping though that the company goes to zero so that I can be right. I, I really <laughs> if you think to yourself, who is the biggest, like, the craziest founder? Then you're probably thinking of the one I, I saw. <laughs> I don't. Well, I don't know. I right can now. think
2: of like ten that fit that. No, but cr- no, but the
1: number one.
3: The number one.
1: <laughs> we're not. We're not talking Josh Jameses here. We're talking top dog. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm just. I'm just kidding. But. <laughs> Okay. I, I guess the point is uh, I, <clears throat> you, you, you're you you're wrong all the time, and I, I just think you got to be wrong. As, as long as you're right sometimes, too, then good job.
3: Yeah, I was at this part, and I think I've mentioned this before on other podcasts, <clears throat> but I was at this meeting uh, with a partner at, at Lightspeed, and he made the comment. He's like, Venture is like the only career where you're wrong 70% of the time, and you are hailed as an absolute god, right? Because <laughs> like, you were right the other 30, right? Um, and so, you know, I I definitely respect what, what David was saying is that like, don't get too caught up on your failures in this because so many of those are like anecdotal data points. Right. And when I think about like when I failed, it's because I didn't like we have a, a relative, you know, strike zone box, whatever. And, and like when I go outside of that, that is where I'm like. That was dumb. Yep. Right? Like us too. Like like we did this like party round and like we usually co-invest alongside another institutional investor. That's like a core tenant of ours. And like we went outside of that in this round. And it has not gone particularly well. And the thing that's frustrating is we're one of the larger investors. And so they spend they they hit us up a ton. And I'm like, I'm not a fund that is designed to like save your company, right? That's just not how we're designed. It's like, it's not a good or bad thing. It's just not how we're designed, right? So, uh, and then there are other oper- there are other deals where I'm like, we should have done that deal because that checked all the boxes for us, right? And and we missed it because either we were too slow or because we misunderstood some key piece of the business. You know, the one I talk a lot about is not that we actually looked at at Uber, but Uh, at the time but I remember when Uber was out raising and thinking to myself like really like people are so excited about taxis like this is a highly regulated highly fragmented 11 billion dollar market like which 11 billion is decent but like that's it like that, that you know I was like it's not that attractive of an opportunity and what I missed there was it wasn't the taxi market they grew the overall market, and it really was the transportation market, which is a trillion-plus dollar market, right? Um, so, like, those are the times where I think about, like, hey, what can I learn from that? Where it's like, hey, there's a shift in perception that I should have, I didn't have, and and maybe like when I'm looking at businesses, can I maybe challenge my perceptions a little bit to be a little more expansive, so that I don't miss out on huge opportunities like that? But but honestly, it's hard, right? Like so many funds have missed out on so many amazing deals. And as a VC, like I can always give you, I don't care what the company is, serve up any company to me and I can give you 10 reasons why it's a terrible investment. So that's not the hard part. The hard part is like knowing that, but then also being able to see the potential and like marrying the two in such a way that you get into at least some of the winners some of the time and that you're not wrong more than 70 percent of the time (laughs) oh kind of rambling there but no i like it
1: i like that
0: one of peter's comments is to be a good vc there's like 10 deals every year to be on the Sequoia level to win how do how does the fraser group look at like that type of a theory because like if you look at like i mean peter's going after different type of logos and i think you guys go after he goes after you know he's in spotify lyft some of these other like larger consumer brands and I think that's a very different persona than what you guys go after. Correct or incorrect?
3: We also do growth stage. So, you know, there's also that. You know, I'm not smart enough, like, like the Fraser group, to go after pre seed and seed.
1: We, we do, I would say, yes, we look for 10 great deals. But what we think differently is the 10 deals don't, aren't 10 new deals. They are often companies we've already been invested in for five years and we say we really need to get more money into this company which means we need to call everyone who's left every employee who's left the company ask if they'll sell us their stock or it means we need to like we at filevine we've been asking and asking and asking hey can we put more money in? can we put more money in? and then one time one of the executives needed to buy a house wanted to move and they're like okay and so just stuff stuff like that where I would say you don't have to necessarily pick 10 brand new great companies, but from, from your uh, current opportunities as much as you can as well, and then you'll still get your 10.
0: I mean, are, are you guys looking for companies to IPO specifically?
1: Nope.
2: We just looking... want to make
0: money. Yeah. So how like how is that different? Because I think a lot of the standard VC persona is... Can this company go public? Can this be a billion dollar company? And I like when you talk with like I've got a friend at um a sixteen z like when I was fundraising a couple of years ago for a project, you know you talk with some 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 companies and they're like well if you're not at a billion we're not interested some VCs and then I talked to um a sixteen z and they're like a billion's too small we're not even interested and that, I assume that you guys have well, a very different that's model
1: the, that's the size of the check they're writing too. I think
0: because of the
2: we size of We look for fund. companies that can monopolize what they're doing and so that means they're going to over the long term be able to get a higher like margin on the business they do. So it's similar to that but we don't have a number like a billion. It could be a smaller market like an opinion where it has a little smaller niche but they can just dominate it and we get in and we get in at a good valuation and you know, hopefully we- that will be a really good IRR for us. I'm sure it will. Are we
1: were, we for... were in GitHub, but they were acquired. By I didn't know you were Microsoft. in GitHub. Yep, that's cool. Yeah, we were in GitHub, but they got acquired by by someone who oh, by <laughs> someone who thought they were more valuable under their umbrella. And uh, so we don't we don't particularly care whether they're acquired or have an IPO. But like Kendall said, they need to have a monopoly potential or a competitive advantage, and those ones tend to grow big. So you know if it's like hey we're going to buy 20 hvac 20 jiffy lubes and operate them really really well and our customers are really going to love us then you know we don't we don't like that cuz it can't
3: get big yeah i mean so what what i've said in the past right is is that there are only a handful of deals in any given year that matter that are going to generate like the vast majority of returns mm-hmm. and that's just the power law of venture capital because You've got, you know, it's just super risky. Most companies are going to fail. Uh, and then you'll have a few that generate such massive returns that like the company after them, you know, is, is a fraction of as, as much return, right? And so if you're, you know, you're Sequoia you ha- and you're Andreessen, and you're like one of these big firms, like they have to be in those deals in order to win. But I think there are a lot of other models where you don't necessarily have to do that. And I think that's actually one area where the frazier Group has done really interesting things. They're in some of the, like the big successful companies in Utah for sure, but they're also really good at identifying some of these smaller niche businesses that don't need to be worth $10 billion and can still generate a very compelling return for their investors.
2: What we'd like to think is like by logo, I don't know, half your companies might fail or maybe 70%. But by dollar allocation, like 90%, 95% of our money doesn't go into gold. So yeah. We write like the pre-seed and the seed. It's like, yeah, half, half of those or whatever aren't going to be big winners. And that's okay. And maybe we wouldn't normally like go out and fund companies that are at like a stage C or D or B. Yep. For the initial check, but it's different if you're if you have a board seat mm-hmm. and then they outgrow you and it turns into a board observer, but you're still watching. Then we do feel qualified to continue to pile money in. Plus, you're getting money in like in between rounds at those later stages. So mm-hmm. you and you're valuing it based on the previous round at that in that case when you're buying a secondary purchase. So uh we kind of make up for it later. Yeah. But that's different. Most, you know, venture funds that are at like the seed or the pre-seed deploy like eighty percent of their money into just brand new logos. And they save check. a tiny little reserve. Yeah. And I just don't know how they can make money doing that. And maybe they don't.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, maybe this is my last question and I don't know what other questions you guys have. Does the Fraser group still follow what I call the the Fraser curve? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna coin this. Okay. That's gonna be a new term of in investing. <laughs> And the example probably one of the most iconic um, venture investing like presentations I saw was from your dad, probably like one of the second to last Utah angel meetings, And he talked about when you look at founders like Josh James, so he started on mature, you see a founder who can grow and get a business to like a million, two million, five million 10 million in, in revenue. And for whatever reason, there's a, a dip and they start losing money. Um, And then they they go through this kind of like tranche and then they start going back up again and your dad talked about this being an example of them having to learn how to like retool learning how to shift how to pivot and part of
2: it's just the company finding product market fit and it mm -hmm. takes a long time so even if the people Mm -hmm. are the same Mm -hmm. it just takes so do you guys still follow that
0: model where he said he's like he's like i don't care if i hate the idea if i if i see this this rise where they can get to significant traction and then they kind of stall and have to pivot and shift around and they lose profitability. Once they start coming up, he was like, he's like, I don't care. That's when I'm going in. That's when I'm investing. That's when I'm grabbing. Secondaries. Is that still true today?
1: I I think that's something we want to do. If you're looking at a company and, uh, I guess it's separating yourself from emotional baggage or all the baggage in the past of like, Hey, they raised this money and this went wrong and you're it's very tempting to avoid those situations because if you then put money in and get it wrong you're kind of doubly exposed because you you should have quote unquote known better and so i i think it's an admirable thing to just say look you know now is now and then was then and you know figure out what went wrong maybe and see if that's that's better but um kind of my rambling answer of uh, yes, you shouldn't. You shouldn't hold someone's history against them. Uh, and I think that's what more, they do. more more than holding. Like, if they do wrong things, or if you know they're they're no different, then yeah, if they haven't figured it out, if they haven't changed, then don't throw mo- good they're... money after bad. But I, I think that's important
0: to just. But that's probably where the Fraser just reassess like well, the Fraser legacy probably gained a lot of it. its mouth. Ma- well, but I'm valuations saying... were probably more compressed. No one would believe in the founder at that point. But it's like here's a team who could demonstrate it. They could they could um, execute, they recognize they learned to pivot, and then they start seeing an uptake again.
2: Yeah. but Part of the reason those are good is because other investors act irrationally. And so if you're buying up their shares, they're selling at rock bottom price when they shouldn't. But I would say in a perfect world, no, because ideally you invest in it and it's just up and up and up those are just real rare. We have some of those and we love those. Those are like the best, but it's like most of our investments don't follow that track. Okay. And so like Filevine did, it was always good from day one and that's great, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of companies like, yeah, like that.
0: I, like he, obviously he didn't exclude others, but that was, if you saw that trend, it was almost like, you yep. know, yep. green flag. But yep. I would
2: say it's more like David saying it's, It's not being we don't look for that and say, oh, well, that's a big winner because it's some kind of down round. Because it had a down round isn't like necessarily a plus. We just don't hold it against them. We come in with fresh eyes. And we have done well. The latest example there is probably consensus, where we put in like two or three hundred K in 2014. They had kind of some ups and downs like that. And then in 2020 to now we've put in another like five or six million. And we got it at prices that were pretty darn close to that 2014 price, because just all the other investors were tired of it. And they were like, yeah, we've heard that story before. It's been on the roller coaster, but it was more based on looking forward and seeing the traction and having that board seat for so long than it was the actual roller coaster. It was just looking forward and not back. And yeah. then capitalizing on other investors who just want to get out of the dump.
3: Yeah, well, we were investors with you guys on that one. You were. We, we actually
1: we approached you to buy your shares and probably was like three or four no. times, and you're like, "Heck no!"
3: <laughs> Jaren's so, a rock star. What are you talking about? Yeah, so uh, he's gonna figure it out. Did figure it out. We so. we
1: tried. We tried. I think that's when you referred. Jaren, was
0: at Consensus.
1: Garen. Oh,
2: yeah. Garen.
0: Garen. Got it. Yeah,
1: he still is. He's still the CEO. And yeah, yep. super
0: they're, impressive. They're
1: a great company. You guys stuck through it.
3: But I mean, to your point, right, like they pivoted their business model. They didn't have true product market fit, at least when we invested. No, and they and turned to the enterprise
2: vent- from SMB to enterprise. Yep. So, yeah. Pivoted. And then they figured
3: it out. They got product market fit. Their metrics are incredible. Yep. And at, at that point, though, like to your point, a lot of people are like, I've been in this for a long time. This deal's got hair on it because, like, you know, the valuation's all over the place. They're always, you know, running low on funds. I just want out. You, you know, a lot sell, of people but, wrote but it off. A lot of people sold, but a lot of people sold. Yeah, but
2: you'll get into trouble if you're just bargain hunting. I don't believe in like looking for the bargains. You've I've first... never seen your
0: data or the Fraser. But Let's call it the Fraser I'm just Dynasty instead so of the Fraser Group. As a bargain say, hunter,
2: this has to legitimately be a company we want more money into, and then you're like, okay, what are the dynamics of the? cap table the board the other investors and you kind of it's the warren buffett
1: put money into a great company at a good price not a
2: yeah and so it's different for every company but first and foremost it has to legitimately be a good company and then you 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 get your wheels turning on how you can get more of it
0: oh for sure for sure so anyways let's call it the fraser dynasty instead of the fraser group deal can the, we D- get that? the david dynasty no. can the we do david. that
1: <laughs> frazier brothers
0: <laughs> i dig it
1: we got to cut scott out of this yeah
0: <laughs> that'd make me sad i love scott did you like my photo i took of him uh, a week ago
2: it was fantastic i should get that, that printed on, on a website. shirt <laughs>
1: Thanks for having us. This was really fun for us. I hope I hope people enjoy it too. But thanks a lot, John and Peter.
3: Yeah, thanks for being on the love, on the pod.
1: Love hanging out with you guys. Likewise.
0: All right, and so this was the first time we've been kind of like messing with this type of uh, flow. Leave comments below on YouTube, on Instagram, on on Twitter.
3: That's what you think. Should we? Do you want more of this? You want less of this? I you, mean, how could you not want more? Less Frazier, of this. But. Smash <laughs> that like and subscribe. That's right. Smash it. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya.